Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Jake Berman about his book titled The Lost Subways of North America, a cartographic guide to the past, present and what might have been, published by the University of Chicago Press. The book takes us really on a tour, a historical tour, visual tour, honestly, in a lot of ways, quite a fun tour to understand why there are so many places in North America that do have subways but don't really use them or tried to but they didn't quite work. Essentially, what is going on with all these cities who in many cases built a lot of things that we don't necessarily use or are not really serving um, the populations as they perhaps could be. So Jake, thank you for coming on to the podcast to tell us all about this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So could you start off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm an attorney by trade, and I got started on the project to map the lost uh, subways of North America based on a traffic jam in Los Angeles. Um, About 15 years ago, I had moved from New York to Los Angeles for a job and was stuck in traffic one too many times on the 101 freeway. So I went to the library a little bit later and started digging through and thinking, why does LA have such bad public transport? Um, And I found a very old map of the Pacific Electric Railway System, which used to be four times the size of the London Tube. This map from the 1920s showed a tagline from whoever had made it saying, the largest electric railway system in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, the largest electric railway system in the world? In Los Angeles? So... One thing led to another, and as it turns out, most cities in North America faced the same problems as Los Angeles. They ended up starting uh, the 20th century with transit systems comparable to the kinds of things you would find in Europe or East Asia, and then things fell apart after the Second World War. And my goal was to show just how this happened uniquely to North America. 
No, that that's a great um, starting point. And I think probably the same sort of impulse that makes people pick up your book is like, hang on a second, what? why is this such a problem? So not to be too pessimistic about this, but of all the systems examined in the book, could you start us off with one or two that you think are perhaps the biggest instances of failure? So the biggest instances of failure, I think, have to be divided into what the systems that were lost and could have been fixed. So the obvious one there is the Pacific Electric Railway in Los Angeles, where Los Angeles decided to discard the largest electric railway system in the world because they had a terrible relationship with the private company that used to own the Pacific Electric. People thought they were jerks. And in the 1940s, when it the opportunity presented itself to rescue the system, people thought that it would be corporate welfare to support a failing electric railway system, which had provided lousy service for decades. Now, when we're talking about modern transit construction where it's fallen short, the most obvious example that I can think of is um, in Dallas, Texas, where their rail system is the size of the Barcelona Metro, but its ridership is an order of magnitude or two lower than what you get in uh, in Barcelona. Hmm. All right. So those are some good starting points then for our discussion. Um. One thing that I was struck by, as you just sort of alluded to, is there's many reasons for a transport system to not really live up to what it could or should be doing. One of which you point to in the book is around kind of the configuration, where the systems are built and kind of which areas they do connect to versus don't. To illustrate this, can you introduce us to one or two systems that either had or in some cases still have the least useful configuration and help us understand how such a thing could even really be built? Sure. So when it comes to public transport, public transport in Europe generally works because it goes the places that people want to go. It's relatively fast. It's relatively frequent. And uh, it's reliable. So if you satisfy all four of those factors, then you will have a public transport system that people will use and that people uh, will employ as part of their daily lives. So some of them will have a system where only three factors are, are satisfied, where like the Miami Metro Rail, their, uh, their subway system, is fast, frequent, and reliable, but it doesn't go the places that you want to go. The people who take public transport in Miami want to go to Miami Beach on the other side of Biscayne Bay. And that's a natural choke point for a, uh, for a metro line to cross the bay. But the train doesn't do that, so very few people take the train. Um, another way you can mess things up is simply by not putting enough of a destination near your train station. So Los Angeles is infamous for this, where they build high-capacity mass transit lines and they stick the stations in uh, these kinds of copy-paste suburban neighborhoods that were built after the Second World War. And if you don't have places to go near the train stations, people won't take the train. And it's actually kind of a shame that in the in North America, with all of the housing crisis uh, things that are going on right now, that 
the logical way to fix the lack of proper public transport and the housing crisis is to put apartment buildings near train stations, which is something that we used to do in the old days and which Europeans still do, but which is not the norm in the United States and Canada anymore. Or at least Canada is better at it than the United States, but it's still nothing like what goes on in Europe. So why? Why isn't that the norm anymore? That's a really complicated question, but uh, you'll have to read the book. No, um, the <laughs> the reason is simply that in many cases, people aren't willing to make the hard choices politically to say that they want to have these types of old fashioned neighborhoods built near the public transport that exists. Uh, when it came to the public transport being removed, when like these old systems in the old days uh, that were incredibly expensive, all ended up getting pulled up in favor of freeways. It's a really interesting combination of post-war land use politics, the pernicious effects of race, and the fact that many of these public transport networks were owned by monopolies that nobody liked. So the Detroit United Railway, uh, Seattle Electric in Seattle, uh, Georgia Power in Atlanta, all of these were rapacious monopolies that were public enemy number one at the beginning of the 20th century. So if you think of the way that people treat the tech giants today as these malicious uh, influencers on society that control too much, uh, that's how people thought of the transport monopolies in the early 20th century. Because, for instance, in Georgia and in Seattle, the electric company had a monopoly over electric generation, but they also had a, an effective monopoly over transport. Um, in Los Angeles, same thing. Uh, the Pacific Electric Railway was also the largest real estate developer in greater LA. And in Oakland, California, across the bridge from San Francisco, the company that ran the trains was a subsidiary of a company called the Realty Syndicate that built hotels and uh, housing. So it's a combination of that lack of, uh, like, it's the combination of monopoly power and the the transit companies were not popular in the early 20th century. And so any attempt to break these pernicious monopolies was viewed as a positive in the early 20th century. This also ties into the fact that after the Second World War, suddenly suburban expansion happens, subsidized by the federal government. And in many places, transit got tied up in the politics of race, as in Atlanta, where there were these large-scale plans to build a significantly larger subway than they currently have, but the very white suburbs did not want to have public transport go out there lest uh, their neighborhoods be desegregated. Hmm. Definitely a complex mix there, um, but any one of them definitely sounds like it would doom uh, a particular system and then kind of adding them all together. It's like, mm, okay, that, that does answer the why question pretty effectively. I want to pick up on the point about monopolies. Uh, well, to start with, I'll probably ask you about the other ones as well. Oh, yeah, sure. But to what extent do we see a common uh, story happening across the different systems where 
kind of whether or not a city has a good transportation system comes down to a particular individual or a small group of individuals? Or are we talking mainly about kind of big companies with lots and lots of people running around? So it's a little bit of both. So in Minneapolis, St. Paul, for instance, the transit company up until 1948 or 1949 was owned by public-minded, civic-minded types, and it was run as a public service. It was a private company, but it was basically competent at what they did. And what happened was uh, a New York financier, with the assistance of the Minneapolis mob, swooped in and stripped it for parts. So there are plenty of occasions where the individual decisions of powerful people really did play a role. But at the same time, the results were more or less the same across the board. Like Detroit and Seattle uh, owned their streetcar systems outright uh, since the interwar period, and they were government-run entities. That is, the public decided to do this. There was no malign conspiracy going on. And at the same time, you have privately run transit companies like the Pacific Electric in LA or um, or DC Transit in DC, where regardless of whether the ownership was public or private, one thing for one reason or another, the transit system ultimately fell apart. Now, DC is a, is a special case because they decided to build a large-scale metro in the 1970s. And because DC's metro... Um, is designed correctly, they ended up with much better results than most other cities in North America. But DC is the exception. As with many things, DC being the exception. Picking up on another um, reason you gave us for why there are so many failed systems, can we talk a bit about the role that race and race tensions have played in restricting or stopping uh, development of public transportation systems? Yeah, I think the race question is a really fascinating um, factor in why public transport after World War II was built or not built. So you can see this in, um, for instance, in Detroit, where the incredibly toxic relationship between the very white suburbs and the very black city ultimately meant that Detroit did not get a subway at all. And they turned down uh, $600 million, which is three point something billion in today's money to build a subway system all across Metro Detroit because the white suburbs and the black city could not get along. Uh, Atlanta's subway was significantly cut down because it's suburban and very white um, ring counties did not want to cooperate with the uh, the urban core and that cultural divide still exists in Atlanta today, uh, where inside the perimeter, that is the city core, has a very different culture than outside the perimeter, which is the freeway that circles Atlanta. Um, and in contrast, you have DC building a subway system, and for the most part, avoiding wholesale demolition for freeways. Because black and white uh, unified to oppose the wholesale demolition of DC to build freeways, and that was um, that was rather unique, honestly. And partially, this is because DC got started later on its freeway system than, say, Los Angeles or um, 
um, Detroit, but it's also that the local politics were dramatically different. So there was an entire campaign in DC in the 1960s and 1970s that, um, that had the slogan, uh, white man's roads through black men's homes. And ultimately that campaign prevented uh, DC from being cut up by freeways and a metro system was built instead. Hmm. Yes, again, a very interesting um, example there and kind of makes you wonder, like, why didn't this happen in more places? Uh, But the examples of Atlanta and Detroit, I think, are uh, illustrative in that sense. Some of these then, the problems that you're describing, in some senses seem fixable. I don't know. Some of them don't seem a lot harder, right? Ideas about law, you have to change quite a lot of things there. Um, race tensions, as we know, in the United States are not exactly easily fixed. Um, monopolies and individuals having a lot of power is, again, something we see well beyond the transport system. But are some of these systems in trouble because of things that perhaps could be more easily fixed than any of those? Well, I think that the, the single easiest thing to fix is simply the way that American cities are built. And because there is such demand for housing and such underused transit systems, reforming local real estate development laws to allow apartment buildings near train stations is the obvious place to start. Um, There are neighborhoods in Los Angeles that look more or less the same as they did in 1950 that have high capacity mass transit near them. And the obvious place to make the transit system better and to alleviate this terrible housing crisis that's on the news every day is simply to bring the city to the transit as opposed to bringing the transit to the city, so to speak. And these are things that can be changed with city council votes, right? They're not things that require um, that require these kinds of grand reforms because U.S. government is just not centralized in that way. All of the decisions that led to the transport system not being very good and the um, housing shortage being so bad result from state and local government decisions for the most part. And those are things that can be changed by people lobbying their local city councilmen as opposed to trying to deal with these things at a macro level, like, you know, like the idea of lobbying in Washington, D.C. is terrifying, but the idea of going to a city council meeting is not. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, And also explains kind of why there's so much variation across the different cities, given the level it's governed at. And in fact, I'd like to ask you about a particular um, pair, I suppose, of cities that I admit I was quite surprised to see such similarities between in the book. There were a number of things you've mentioned already where I was like, "Mm, okay, I didn't know the detail, but that doesn't surprise me. This one did. To what extent did Cleveland and San Francisco face the same problem when it came to building public transportation systems? And why do we not think of them in comparison today? Why have they ended up in such a different place from maybe a more similar starting point than we realize? Well, so I I can say that I've never lived in Cleveland, just to bookend this. I, I did grow up in San Francisco. And San Francisco in the 1990s was not the kind of boomtown that you that you think of today. It was like when my father settled in San Francisco uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, it was viewed as this cute and fun town on the West Coast, but not really in the big leagues like Boston or Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia. And so San Francisco still had the kinds of deindustrialization issues in the uh, 1970s and 80s that Cleveland faced, but not at the same scale because Cleveland really was an industrial town. Um, Specifically with both Cleveland and San Francisco, though, they faced a similar problem of having an underused freeway along the, uh, the waterfront and the desire to redevelop all of that. And in that, you can draw good parallels because San Francisco said, we'll just get rid of the freeway, we'll put a couple of tracks in the median, and we'll call it a day, which worked out quite well. Cleveland, on the other hand, decided that they had to keep everything, so they had a freeway there as well as a high-capacity transit line that nobody uses. And a and the result is that Cleveland's waterfront is not a very pleasant place to be compared to San Francisco or for that matter, Detroit or Chicago, which have similar climates, which have the same challenges of deindustrialization. And yet the Detroit and Chicago waterfronts are much more pleasant to be because you don't have a freeway blocking everything. Hmm. Very interesting to see how these specific decisions can have such an impact. Um, And it's in fact, in that sort of vein, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about land use laws Mm -hmm. um, and go back right the way to the beginning when you were frustrated in LA. Um, It's, I think in a lot of ways, because as you said, the housing crisis is so front and central in the news, it's easy to think that the land use laws are kind of similarly problematic across the country. But developing the point about city councils, how can we see this actually playing out quite differently if we compare somewhere with, with like Dallas with Los Angeles? Sure. So Dallas and Los Angeles have uh, somewhat different built patterns because a place like Dallas can keep expanding outward until you reach the Oklahoma state line. And that is the way that Dallas has decided to keep growing. LA, on the other hand, ran out of land around 1980 or 1990 because they've occupied ever because they've occupied everything between the Pacific and the mountains that bracket LA on three sides. So it's become uh, like their land use laws are sadly very similar, which has led both places to have underused transit systems that are actually quite sizable. 
As I mentioned previously, Dallas has a rail system the size of Barcelona's, and LA does as well, but very few people take it. Um, Now, these things can be fixed, and even within a metropolitan area, you can see that some places are better than others at trying to put stuff near their uh, near their transport infrastructure. So, for instance, um, like within Greater Los Angeles, um, like the city of LA has done a very good job of trying to put new homes downtown, and LA's next door neighbor, Beverly Hills, has fewer people today than they did in 1970. Hmm. Definitely an interesting contrast there. I know we've been focused on the problems, and obviously that's an important thing to understand kind of how we got here. But can I ask you to tell us a little bit about maybe some more optimistic sides of this? Um, Specifically, the fact that I hadn't been aware of that um, an elevated railway is the cheapest and best method of creating public transport. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is this such a good idea? And what explains kind of when and where this has or hasn't been put into place? Sure. So the elevated railway was the standard way of building a metro system before World War One because it was cheap, it was fast to build, and you can use a lot of standardization in ways that are much more difficult if you're building underground. So if you take the uh, if you take the J train in New York City, you'll see that the line um, the line has st- has stations which are totally standardized because all they have to do is build it above ground. You know, it's just a structure. Uh, But you can also see the disadvantages of elevateds, especially primitive elevateds, because the structures are big, they're kind of ugly. And most of these problems were solved by 1920 or 1930. But because everyone had the memories of those old, lousy, noisy and steam-powered elevateds, they became, um, they be- they went out of fashion after the First World War. So um, in, say, Montreal or Washington, D.C., most of the system through the city center is underground. Um, Vancouver really bucked the trend with this in that they built an elevated system after World War II, because they used all of these modern technologies to make the trains quiet, uh, less ugly, and uh, and frequent. So the Vancouver Sky eh, the Vancouver Skytrain is quiet. It's fast, and it doesn't make the clunk, 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 clunk screech noises that people hate so much about elevators, and. The thing is, it's difficult to build elevateds because people will fetch and complain about the idea of having an elevated nearby. That's that's just the nature of the beast. But when it comes to building a rapid transit system, oftentimes that's the best option. Mm. Interesting to think about kind of the role that complaint or protest plays into this, because I'd like to ask you next about the freeway revolts in D.C. that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we can learn from those in maybe in replicating them elsewhere? So I think what's useful about the D.C. freeway revolt is that it's one of the few cases in North America where transport politics 
and uh, racial politics align to stop something bad. Um, demolishing neighborhoods wholesale to build freeways was entirely normal in the 1960s and 1970s. And in D.C., the level of racial comedy is a major reason why they didn't put a figure eight of freeways around the Capitol building and the White House. So what can we then take from D.C. or maybe other transportation systems you discuss in the book in terms of lessons for improvements going forward? I think that D.C. has two major lessons. The first is the necessity of um, somehow disarming the race question when it's connected to public transport, which I realize is much easier said than done. The other thing that D.C. did extremely well is that D.C.'s local governments, because um, they're, DC, Washington, D.C. is made up of uh, the Virginia suburbs on one side, the Maryland suburbs on the other, and the District of Columbia itself, which is run by the federal government. And what D.C.'s local governments did when building its metro is that they made a conscious decision to center their new development near the train stations. So if you get off in Bethesda, Maryland, or Arlington, Virginia, once you pop out of the subway, there's stuff near the stations in a way that doesn't exist elsewhere in North America. Um, I hammer on Los Angeles because it's the exact opposite of the way they do things in LA. Hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense to think about kind of going back even to the Miami example, you know, why do people want to use this? Um, and how does it sort of fit into people's needs? Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the book in terms of either sort of biggest historical surprises or failures or lessons learnt uh, that you hope people think about next time city council votes come up? I think the biggest lesson to be learned is that um, these types of situations came to be because people decided to make these decisions, right? Like, it sounds like a crazy pipe dream to have American cities built like European ones, but they were the product of people making decisions that made sense at the time. These things were not handed down on Mount Sinai. And there are plenty of examples of cities that have decided to properly urbanize. So uh, Emeryville, California is a good example of this, where it's a small suburb of um, that when I was growing up, it was kind of a post-industrial mess uh, right across San Francisco Bay from SF proper. And in that time, Emeryville has decided to use its uh, use its land efficiently and to make it one of the more desirable places in the Bay Area to live nowadays because it has taken advantage of uh, its position to to build in the European way. Um, so these things can be fixed. It's just a question of doing it. Mm. All right. Well, speaking of decisions and doing it, um, now that this book is out in the world and anyone can go get it and look at all the beautiful maps and get into the details of these systems, is there anything you might be deciding to do next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to preview? Uh it's not really on topic. I mean, I feel like writing a sci-fi novel, but this is a history pod, not a uh, no, not please. a sci-fi pod. <laughs> we are multidisciplinary and interested in many things. So any work you'd like to preview, please take a minute and tell us. Oh yes, well, I'm I am writing a uh, I'm writing a sci-fi novel now um, of the classic space opera variety. 
uh, mm. just to get a palate cleanser after uh, <laughs> working on a very serious book about transit for the last um, for the last many years. Fair enough. I think there's probably a lot of listeners who can uh, identify with and maybe even fantasize about the idea of a palate cleanser from a big project. So best of luck with that. Thank you. Um, And of course, for any listeners who are intrigued by the various systems we've talked about, the book is titled The Lost Subways of North America, A Cartographic Guide to the Past, Present and What Might Have Been, published by the University of Chicago Press. Jake, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was great being here.